women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your voice. Hello and welcome to She Roars, the podcast about and with the change-making women of Princeton University. My name is Liz Fuller-Wright, and I'm sitting in for host Margaret Koval. With me today is Joe Dunkley, one of the foremost astrophysicists and space science communicators working today. Joe has made world-class discoveries. She was the first person to know the precise age of the universe, which I hope she'll tell us more about. And she recently wrote the extraordinarily readable Our Universe and Astronomer's Guide. She has won nearly every award the astronomy world has to offer, including the Maxwell Medal. And most recently, she got to meet Queen Elizabeth after being awarded an OBE, the rank of Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. Here at Princeton, she teaches physics and astrophysics, works with data from some of the biggest telescopes on the planet, and raises two young girls with her husband, Faramus de Boivola, a historian at Princeton. Joe, thanks so much for coming in today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's really lovely to have you here. Can we start with hearing about your journey? Would you say you followed a typical path into astrophysics? I don't think I did completely. I I had no idea for a long time that I wanted to do astrophysics. I didn't really know what it meant to do astrophysics. It's uh, not in most children's wish, wish lists, you know, astronomer, ballerina, and astrophysicist. It's really not, <laughs> although it should be. It, it should be. <laughs> um, and so I I did follow a path of doing what I liked doing. I didn't think I had to have a particular career in mind. And so I did what I liked doing, which in, as a younger child was always maths. That was what I loved doing. Um, and so I did go to university to then study sciences because I realized that I love to use maths to understand the world. Mm-hmm. But it, but I still, even though I loved studying sciences, I did physics, I did some chemistry, but I ended up focusing on physics. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually come out of my university um, degree thinking that I wanted to be a scientist. I thought I wanted to do something different. I thought I wanted to go and, um, you know, have a have a regular job. <laughs> um, uh, so this wasn't something that that had occurred to me actually until after I had done my degree in physics, um, and and I realized sort of after that that. I missed using my brain in this way, that, that probably I had to keep using it in this way, and that maybe doing a PhD in astrophysics was, was, the, was the way forward. Was there anything that, that really prompted that? Did you have some epiphany moment? So a little bit. I had two, sort of a couple of different epiphanies. So um, one was, you know, after my, after my degree, I actually set off backpacking across South America. As one does. As one does, yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, out in the deep desert of Bolivia, um, I've you know finally had a chance to really stare at the skies and see the amazing stars that you can see from there so well. And and you can't you know I grew up in London where the stars are not you know so much visible. like growing up in New Jersey. That's right, exactly. <laughs> Too um, much light pollution to see any but the very brightest stars. Exactly, yeah. and so even though they're still amazing, then seeing seeing really this depth of the this, the real night sky, you know, was was extraordinary. And at the same time, I was reading some popular science books as well, um, and thinking, oh, this is actually this is really cool. You know, I was reading about string theory. I was reading about um, you know new ideas that I hadn't come across before, and I thought this mm-hmm. is exciting. But yet, still, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm 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 going to be a going to be a scientist. And then the real a thing that really kind of tripped me was when I was I came back and I was just working in, in London doing random jobs <laughs> for a while. 
And one of the things I was doing to make some extra money was was actually teaching maths to high school students, um, tutoring in the evenings, you know, an hour a day, mm-hmm. uh, tutoring different students. And after a few months, I suddenly realized that that was the hour of the day that I enjoyed the, the most, was the, the hour that I would teach maths. Um, and... I it suddenly it occurred to me that really doing something numerical with my brain was what I needed to be doing, um, and that even thing even the other things might I might find them you know give me some motivation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the right way to use my brain. I had sure. to do, had to do science. You just had to flex that little muscle in your brain, and you just didn't feel right unless you were doing it. Yeah, you yeah, know how that, yeah, that makes sense. So you went on and got your PhD from Oxford. I did, yeah, and then you came back. You came to Princeton for the first time. What brought you here? So I had this wonderful opportunity. So it was I came here as a postdoc. So the thing, you know, the research job that we do after our PhDs. Um, um, and I was offered this job to work on this this project, this NASA satellite called WMAP. Um, That's the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, a U.S. satellite launched in 2001 that mapped irregularities in the cosmic microwave background. I'm hoping you will unpack that for us. That's right. So this is a it's a, it's a good. So it's a it's a satellite mission, um, you know, launched by NASA, and actually had been it was already up in the sky observing when I came here to Princeton. And it's actually named after David Wilkinson, who was a professor here in Princeton for many years, and a you know a, a great colleague of many of my current colleagues now in Princeton. He was um, one of the original members of the team, and he he passed away. I think it was just before launch. Or? After launch, actually. After launch. After okay. launch. Yeah. So yeah, he yeah. was. He was. I think you know. I, I didn't know him sadly, but I understand he was just fundamental to the whole the whole program. So this was a, a project with a huge amount of Princeton involvement, um, uh, and 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 so I was offered this job to come and work on the analysis of the data. So the satellite was already out in space, staring at the far distant universe it's 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 amazing it takes this the earliest picture of the universe that we can take that's what WMAP was doing you're taking the universe's baby pictures that's right yeah we, we get to take a picture of it as when it was only 400,000 years old which sounds pretty old but in terms of the age of the universe yeah that was its early infancy that's right because the whole we now think that the whole universe is almost 14 billion years old so yeah, in in in, in universe terms, four hundred thousand is is almost right at the beginning. It's kind of amazing, even that we can look back to that time, and it's this wonderful property that the further you look out into space, the further back in time you can see, because light actually has to take time to reach us. So this light that we look at, that we were looking at with WMAP, and I still look at today with other in- instruments. Um, it's been traveling for so long through space that actually it carries this this snapshot of of the universe as it was a long time ago. It almost hurts the brain to think about just how big the universe is, that at the speed of light, it has taken almost 14 billion years for the light to travel all the way from the origins of the universe to us today. That's That's... That's really big. <laughs> it's really big. And, you know, I often compare it to and even we think of our solar system as being quite big mm-hmm. and that it takes hours f- for light to travel across. Um, so and that's already a large place. It's, you know, billions of miles you know, out to distant planets. But even that is just hours for light to pass through. So so to take billions of years is, yeah, really, it's a lot bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you were working on the WMAP project, you mentioned that that's how we learned the age of the universe, almost 14 billion years. 
But you were actually one of the very first people on Earth to know the precise age of the universe. Well, I did have this wonderful opportunity. So, so I will say that the, the team members who I joined had actually already made a, a, an estimate of this with the early data from WMAP and actually from previous data as well. But when I joined the team, my job was to estimate these numbers from our kind of up, the updated data. So I joined the project partway through. And so we had new data and we were we were... Um, yeah, making kind of better estimates of the age, the, the rate of expansion, all these things. So I, yeah, I, I, my little piece of the pipeline, or you know, the, the the path to go from raw data to numbers was that last piece where you try, where you extract the, those numbers. And so I had this great. I was so excited because I, you know, got to run my computer code that spat out, you know, the age of the universe. And of course, I, you know, sent it along to my team soon after I got it. But I did have that great feeling of like, oh, I know these numbers, you know, better than anyone else, right, right for this minute. <laughs> for the minute. Yeah, for you didn't minute. keep it to yourself. No, no. And but it just, was, yeah. yeah. For the minute, you got to be the one to know the age of the universe. It's pretty good. <laughs> so in addition to teaching and research and learning about the age of the universe, you also spend a lot of time sharing your delight in science, in, in space with non-scientists. You give a lot of public talks, and now you've written your new book, Our Universe. The book takes readers on a tour through the solar system and out into the wider universe. And one thing I loved about it was that it talks about who made the discoveries that we now take for granted, and how often they were women, whose contributions were either overlooked or sometimes actively minimized. Uh, who are some of your own favorite heroines from early astronomy? So. I have a bunch, and, the, and it's it's increased since I wrote this book and discovered more about them. But um, uh, one of my heroes is certainly Vera Rubin, who's um, was the person who really laid the foundations for for us now knowing that most of the universe is actually completely invisible. It's it's kind of this crazy thing that all the things we can actually see here on Earth and out in space make up only a small fraction of of what's out there. We now have this mysterious thing we call dark matter that is probably this new kind of particle that we haven't actually found yet, but we think makes up most of the universe. And and Rubin, while she did wasn't the first discoverer of evidence for it, she really laid her her observations of actually of spinning galaxies uh, really you know, put it on on a properly firm footing. Um, but she also, you know, in, in learning about her, I, I think her science is wonderful, but also, you know, I love learning about her life. And so actually one of the things that uh, brings, links her in, links her into Princeton is actually she applied to Princeton to do her PhD um, back in the late 1940s. But in fact, she wasn't able to come here because at the time we didn't, we didn't take women graduate students. Or undergraduates, yeah. Or undergraduates, that's that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but happily, that situation has now changed. Yes. Um, um, and so she had, you know, she had her own battles. She also was trying to raise kids while doing her science, which resonated kind of strongly with me. Um, and and she also had to, you know, fight to be able to use a telescope um, or telescope. So she wanted to use the the biggest telescopes available at the time. And at the time, women weren't allowed to use them. Mm-hmm. But she just went ahead and, and did it anyway. <laughs> so, Good for her. So she's one of my one of my heroes. And then the other, I have this group of heroes. There's this wonderful group of women 
are, who were working at the turn of the last century in, at Harvard, um, and they're called the Harvard Computers. <laughs> this is back when computing was a verb for doing math as opposed to a machine that sits on your desk. That's right. And so you didn't have a machine at your desk. So you had people, and you had people who weren't just who weren't just calculating things, but were looking. You know, stud- they they actually were brought in to study photographic plates of stars thousands of them and to look at you know to to judge how bright stars were what colors they were what properties they had so these were photographs taken through the best telescopes of the age mm-hmm. so the, this data was data that almost no one had access to but the women themselves didn't have access to the telescopes. They just they got the data. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So their their male colleagues were allowed to go and operate the telescopes. Some of some of which included actually going to Peru and going you know up mountains in Peru to take to take images that you can only see from the southern hemisphere. Oh yeah, of course. Which um and so they would bring them back and 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 these these women in the Harvard College Observatory were brought together and and they and they did this sort of painstaking work studying these. Um, studying these images of stars, but what I love is that they made these really impactful discoveries and you know insights into stars and and what they could be used for. One of the fascinating characters is um, Henrietta Swan Leavitt, who um, discovered this enormously important pattern about pulsing stars. So she discovered that the longer these stars take to pulse, the brighter they are, and that actually turns out to be vital for figuring out how big the universe is because if you can figure out how bright a star is you know how far away it is from you and you can actually find out where things are so that led to actually the discovery that there are galaxies beyond our milky way and then that the universe was growing and that it had a big bang like completely fundamental so she should be way more famous than than she is henrietta swan levitt that's right it's a name to remember yeah did she have any princeton connections or she did not, but actually a second, another one, another one of my my heroes is um, Cecilia Payne Kaposchkin. So she actually worked out what stars are made of. She was working in the in the twenties, nineteen twenties, and at that time, people thought that perhaps stars in the sky were made of the same things that the Earth is made of. So mostly rock. Most, yeah, and and the element exactly, and the uh, mixture of elements that, mm-hmm. that that could make up our Earth. But actually, it turns out that stars are almost completely just hydrogen and helium gas. Um, But people didn't know that at the time. So she had this realization and understanding through, you know, careful studies and and thinking about things. And and she actually presented this in her PhD thesis or was going to, but actually one of the Princeton professors, um, Henry Norris Russell, discouraged her from presenting this work (laughs) because it was too, you know, too wildly um, uh, different to the to the existing opinion. Um, but it turned out to be right. So so again, we, 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 we hope that we will keep encouraging people to have good new ideas. And it, it's worth remembering just how recently things were this hard to be a woman in science. You know, it's not just that we've come a long way, but we've come there so quickly. This, this, you know, 1920, that's when my grandmother was born. That's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. And I think there's lots of um, you know, there there are plenty of our faculty here now who will have come here in an, in an environment that was very different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I feel very lucky because since I've been, you know, working as a professional scientist, I've felt like it's normal to be a woman and it's fine. But it's yeah, it's recent and that does impact the 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 environment as a whole. So you teach, you research, you meet with students, you write books, you travel to Chile to visit your newest telescope that I hope we'll hear more about. 
So clearly you are juggling a ton of projects, all work that you love, but which keeps you busy. So could you just walk us through a typical day in the life of Joe Dunkley? Sure, yeah. So so uh, many of my days involve meeting with my research group. So that's the one of the things I love about being a scientist is I get to work with graduate students and postdocs and also undergraduates here in Princeton too. Um, and so I might, I, I perhaps have a group of seven or eight people. And so half my day might be actually sitting down with each of them individually and just looking at what they've done that week. You know, they bring their laptop along and we'll look at, uh, you know, analysis of our data that they've done or computer code they've written or results they're looking at. You know, I think a lot of people imagine that astronomy is mostly looking through telescopes. And it was, you know, a century ago. But these days, it's a whole lot more time looking at a laptop than uh going to the telescope. That's absolutely true. And, and when we look at our, you know, we, we, some of my colleagues actually go to telescopes much more than I do. I, I go all very rarely. Um, and most of our data just comes through, um, you know, we just get it electronically and we look at it. Yeah. On, on our laptops, which we are often actually connecting to very large supercomputers. So um, we'll do lot, lots of our work is on, yeah, on these big computers where our data sit and we kind of churn through different models for what, what things could be. And does that include Princeton's own supercomputing cluster? It does. Yeah. So, so, um, so, I my my team use the 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 computer called Tiger here, which is um, uh, fantastic. It's and, and the the computing system here is is really great. So we we do a lot of that here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'd spent very little time actually looking at data. What we do do is we take we do take turns to do remote observing in Chile. So our telescope in Chile, um, we take shifts to you know be on duty, keeping an eye on it and taking observations with it. Um, so that is a, that is an element of what we do. But for certainly for me, where me and my and my team we analyze the data, the majority of stuff is happening on our on our computers. Yeah, and so yeah, the other parts of my day, I might be teaching for an hour or so. Um, we might have often we'll have a seminar where we all come together and someone presents new results and we hear about them. We also have a wonderful thing in our astrophysics department where every morning we get together for coffee and we look at the new papers that have been put out that day in astrophysics. It's all on one website. Every morning? Every morning, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So every morning there's there's one page where every single paper that anyone in astrophysics has submitted to a journal or wants you know wants to share with people it goes on one page and and so we kind of look through and people who've noticed something interesting uh, talk about it so it's a really wonderful thing about Princeton actually sounds like a great way to to build community among the the astrophysics students and so and this is open to the public this is anyone who's interested in hearing about the latest research that's true it's, I will say it's mo- it's mainly it's mainly our it's our department who go along <laughs> but yeah other people are, are welcome to come um, um, but I think in general one one of the things that we find so important in doing our science is to keep up with what other people are doing because you learn mm-hmm. you know you need to know what's happening because things change you know things you know, a month can pass and, and things have changed and, and people have learned new stuff and, and we have to have a way of keeping up with it. So we have to kind of help each other to all keep up with it. Um, and sure, that's, that's a, bit, it's a big part of our, of our job. A part of the day that I do like, but I don't spend nearly enough time doing is actually, you know, looking at data myself and, and writing computer code myself. And actually, as now I've become a professor, I spend less of my time doing that. But I try and I try and keep some of my time still for that. 
You have to keep flexing that part of your brain. Yeah. You you write your own code? I do, but not nearly enough of it anymore, <laughs> as my as my students will probably attest to. Um, but it is. I would say that that's that's the, you know, different different scientists have different tools, and you know there'll be some some scientists who the big part of their day would be um, building an instrument, testing it, doing stuff in the lab. Mm-hmm. Other scientists would actually might be. Uh, you know, writing down equations on a piece of paper and thinking about something more deeply theoretical. Mm-hmm. Where my work sits is in between, where um, I'm trying to test theoretical ideas with real data from from telescopes. And so to do that, we are asking new questions of the data that haven't been asked before. And to ask a new question, you have to write a piece of computer code because no one has asked the question before. So you have to have a custom, you know, a custom way of asking a question. And that means writing some computer code to do it. So, you know, we we have to think about the theoretical things, too. And I love that. But it's that the the real workhorse is 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 looking at is using computer code and then using it to study what we've what we found out. Coding and programming in general are definitely exploding here at Princeton. You know, the, the computer science department is sort of taking over the campus in some ways. But well, data science in general. And so do your students all come to you knowing how to code or have you trained any of them? So many of them do, actually. So a lot of them have learned those skills and in their undergrad, and that's really valuable. And um, But actually, one of the things we do in astrophysics here is we have a lot of our undergrads do summer projects. Um, mm. And at the beginning of their summer project, and I think they're doing, you know, they do that at the beginning of each summer, um, they spend a week actually doing kind of boot camp where they <laughs> they learn some of the, the the coding tools that they might not already have. Sure. So um, it's very variable, but students tend to have picked up some of those skills in either kind of previous research projects or or university college courses. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And and one one thing also that's I think really valuable is. Lots of the people in our field that actually do go into data science and do go out, you know, beyond ast- astrophysics into, you know, into the wide world and and use their computer skills for their for their, you know, other careers. And I think that's that's really valuable. So if we can just take a step back for a second, we've talked about some of the tools and the equipment, but what excites you most about astro- astronomy, astrophysics, space today? So so I love to be able to a- ask, you know big questions about how how the whole of the thing works. So I, I, do, I do a particular part of astrophysics called cosmology, which means I ask questions about the universe as a whole. And so one of the things we're trying to do right now that I'm trying to do is understand what made it begin to grow in the first place. Why did the Big Bang happen? So we think that space, the whole of space is growing and that it began doing so 14 billion years ago, but we don't know why. And we don't know what was happening back then. Um, And I love that we can actually look into space and try and answer such a question. Um, That is kind of mind boggling. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, so right now we're actually trying to, we're looking or we're building this new telescope to look for these ripples in space time that could have been sent out during the Big Bang itself, basically the kind of force of the the rapid expansion that the Big Bang produced would have rippled space-time in such a way that, um, you know, space itself actually would shrink and grow as these ripples pass through. Um, just just in the last few years, these, these, these same ripples have been seen from black holes colliding together. 
from the wonderful LIGO experiment. Um, but we're looking for the same kind of ripples, but produced actually during the Big Bang. So tell me about the, the telescopes in Chile, because I know you have a story for, about them. Sure. Yeah. So so the one that, that I'm using now, that's a huge, it's a, it's a big Princeton project. It's led by my colleagues here in Princeton, um, is called the Atacama Cosmology Telescope. Um, and so it's high in the Chilean desert. It's at 5,000 meters elevation. Um, and um, it's it's been operating actually for 10 years. And I, and I began working on it actually at the end of my postdoc when I was here in Princeton before. I then worked on it while I was over in the UK and then I, I'm still working on it now. <laughs> um, and we're actually trying to measure right now how fast the universe is growing from it. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's a very it's 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 got this huge Princeton history. Um, so, uh, uh, two of our Princeton professors have have successively led it. So Lyman Page to begin with, and now Suzanne Staggs, who's in the physics department here, are the you know, principal investigators of the project. There've been a huge number of Princeton postdocs and Princeton graduate students and Princeton undergraduates working on it. It's really been this 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 big project locally, um, and and I also love it because it's in this wonderful location where. Happens, which happens to be just really close to that that Bolivian desert where I went backpacking, uh, you know, all those years ago. Um, and at the time when I was out in the Bolivian desert, I thought I was in the middle of nowhere, the ends of the earth. <laughs> it turns <laughs> out that that just over the mountain was was where our telescope now is. <laughs> so you know, um, and I actually went, but when I went back to, I've only actually been to our Chilean telescope a couple of times because as a, as a theorist, I'm not actually that useful at the telescope. Um, but I, I went back, I went there and I, you know, could look down over the border into Bolivia and could see where I'd been as a, you know, as a backpacker. That was pretty Starry-eyed special. Starry-eyed recent graduate. Yeah, exactly. And so now, so, so this, this, we are trying to answer all these scientific questions with, Act, which is how we 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 that's that's what we call it, um, including how fast the universe is growing. Um, but we're also building this sort of new set of telescopes at the same site, um, and that's called the Simons Observatory. Um, and and this is a project that basically replaces our current telescope with a new one that's designed such that it can fit, you know, ten times as many detectors inside it. Um, wow. Yeah, it's That's a, a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot, and and, and it's in, under construction right now. And actually, the 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 we're seeing pictures coming through of our colleagues at, at, at down at uh, UPenn are involved in actually building the the uh, you know the part of the telescope that houses the detectors, and it's huge. It's really big. <laughs> um, and and that's what you need to be able to see this image of the baby universe in better detail. Um, and and. And so we are, yeah. So we're building this one, this new telescope, and a, actually a, a, a few smaller ones that are particularly designed to look for these ripple, this rippling signal from from the Big Bang. Um, and again, it's a it's a it's a it's a really fun thing to be doing in Princeton because we bring together both you know my group who are looking at who are preparing for analysing the data and thinking about what science we should be doing mm-hmm. um, with um, Suzanne Staggs and Lyman Page, um, their groups who are actually going to be testing and building all the, the detectors and a lot of the instrumentation. So mm-hmm. all these many, many detectors are going to come through Suzanne Stagg's lab and <laughs> and 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 they're, they're really playing a huge leading role in it. Oh, that's fantastic. 
So the other the hat that you wear so often is public outreach. You you talk about science in ways that the rest of us can understand, which I appreciate for one. <laughs> but very few world-class researchers are also science communicators. Why do you choose to wear both hats? I, I do it basically because I really enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, I, I... Always a good answer. Yeah. I, I, I think it's important we do it as scientists. I think that part of our job, you know, we're finding these things out and we're doing it because we think it's sort of enriching for the for humans to know these things. You know, we're not trying mm-hmm. to cure cancer. We're not trying to build, um, you know, new energy sources. Uh, we're actually trying to learn things that, that enrich our lives. And so if we only know it ourselves, I think we've only done part of our job. Mm-hmm. We have to share it because otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> you know, um, so I, I do think it is an important part of my job, but I also said I, I like it. I... I it helps me to sort of keep my passion for the science because when you're explaining what you do to to someone who hasn't got all the technical details you have to really explain why it's exciting and and why you think it's fun. Um and um and it's actually always been a part of what I what I have been doing. So I guess ever since I was a PhD student I got I I spent time going into schools and doing doing other things. I always thought that that was um you know, enjoyable and important. Um, and but also I think it's I think it, you know, you're affected by people you work with too. So my PhD advisor was writing a popular science book while I was doing my PhD. Um, then I came to Princeton and, you know, my, my mentors here, including David Spurgel, who's been a professor here for years, did a lot of a lot of, you know, public science work mm-hmm. um, and actually encouraged me to teach a teach a class here in Princeton, not for our students, but actually for um, middle school science teachers who come in and do this um, this teacher enrichment, these teacher enrichment courses run by the teacher prep program here in Princeton. So you were helping middle school science teachers teach astronomy to their students. That's right. And so there are these wonderful, it's called this Quest program here in Princeton. And, and so they come in for these week-long courses. And so we did a course on astronomy. And so I teamed up with a with a teacher to prepare, you know, content a week's a week long worth of content where you're both teaching the teachers and you're giving them activities to take back to their classrooms as well. Sure. And you know that was really enjoyable and actually I think provided a really important basis for for then the book that I wrote about it because it really made me think about how to explain things in a simple way. But I guess what I'm saying is that you know I was encouraged to do that by my mentors here. So when a little girl comes to you and says. I want to study the stars when I grow up. What do you tell her? I tell her, amazing. Actually, so just last week, actually, I had some, some <laughs> <laughs> I had exactly this experience. Um, and and I will say that that is, that's, to me, encouraging young girls and younger women to that, that they can be scientists and they can do astrophysics and study the stars is is a big part of why I why I love doing the, the public science so much. And I, and I tell them, yes, you can do it. And, and, and I think that, you know, girls and young women need to be told they can do it and they need to see people doing it as well. Um, so I, I try and do both things, right? <laughs> tell, tell them they should do it. And and I just, you know, try and be, I think, you know, the, the advice I got from someone is, you know, just be visible. If you're, if you're visible being a woman scientist um, or, or a minority scientist, that, that in itself will, will have a huge impact. That's a great note to end on. Joe, thank you so much for coming in today. 
Uh, your book, Our Universe, An Astronomer's Guide, is available everywhere books are sold, including right here at Labyrinth Books in Princeton. I also want to thank Dan Kearns, our audio editor, and Daniel Alio, our producer. To our audience, thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. Thanks so much, Joe. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications, with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.